Good afternoon, everyone. I wish we could simply just take a vote that the Stewart family has to stay in Burma. I know we don't have the power to do that, but I think you might be encouraged by seeing the results. Uh, okay, it really has uh, been just a pleasure to meet you and see the smiles come upon the faces of so many of the members just uh, meeting up with you guys again. So God bless you. It's great to have you. Let's all turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we're going to talk about a, uh, a, a theme uh, that comes up quite often in the book of Ecclesiastes today. And uh, the theme is striving after wind, which is basically, uh, I think, Solomon's way of saying spinning your wheels. In other words, you're working hard and a lot of energy is being dis- displaced, but, but it's not happening the way that you'd really want it to happen. Uh, things aren't taking place the way that you'd like them to. We've been uh, reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you know Solomon does something. Maybe it's starting to just really, uh, maybe uh, impact itself on yourself, on you even more. But Solomon's asking questions that many people ask. I think a lot of times, after we've been Christians for a while, we we lose a little bit of connection with the questions. What are the questions that the people that don't know about God's plan for their life? What are they thinking? What are they struggling with? What are they searching for in their heart? And therefore, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you really read through it and get to know it, it provides you with a lot of discussion material for people who maybe don't believe in the Scriptures yet or believe in God yet, because what this is, it's a representation of human wisdom at its best. Solomon got wisdom from God. He got a discerning ability. And so he was able to even, you know, it says in the... the, uh, the uh, other history books that, that Solomon also wrote down scientific journals and he studied animals and he built great buildings and became an architect and all these various things. Like he was a really brilliant guy. The sad thing, though, about Solomon's life is by the end of his life, his heart had wandered away from God because he'd married just a few too many women. Like I think it was 300 or something. Uh, but anyways, uh, I think all that power being king and things, uh, you know, I, I can say that isn't so wise. And I think I, I think you would agree. But these questions in the book of Ecclesiastes, sociologists call them questions of ultimate meaning. In other words, you know, what, what is after death? Is there something? Uh, where did we come from? Our origin? What's our purpose? Um, right and wrong. Is it just a fabric of our imaginations? Or is there, in fact... Right and wrong, a, mo- a universal morality. And then suffering. That's always a question. Like, why is there suffering in the world? But it's interesting because Solomon, and we've talked a little about this, he doesn't give a revealed answer from God. What he's really giving is the best answer human wisdom can produce. And actually, we're made in God's image. And so the truth does resonate with us. And Solomon definitely touches on true comments every once in a while. But at the end of the day, he really doesn't evidence a great hope in an eternity with God. He didn't understand God's love enough to envision the fact that God won't stop loving him because he dies. In fact, God will love him through death and forward. And his father David, who also wrote a fair bit, 
Not so much about science or about, uh, you know, those things that interested him of worldly wisdom, but he just wrote about how awesome God is and how amazing God's love is. So in lesson one, we talked about nothing really seems to change. This is sort of human wisdom looking at the world. Things just seem to go in cycles. And historians will talk about this, just the cycles of history. Um, Lesson two, fulfilling fleshly desires in and of itself isn't really satisfying. It's so momentary. And so maybe lunch was awesome, but we all know dinner's coming. You know, and and that's just indicative of life in itself. And then uh, life is made up, lesson three, of contrasts where one time it's right to do this, another time it's right to do the exact opposite. It's like, man, how do you figure this all out? But there is a time for everything under the sun. And some of those things just happen to us naturally, but some of those things are our decisions that we make. But I want us to just look at uh, some verses out of uh, Ecclesiastes 4. And what Solomon's really looking at here is, he's saying human ambition is meaningless. There's something meaningless in human ambition. And basically, it's a striving after win. So let's just read together Ecclesiastes 4 verses 4 to 6. And I saw that all labor and all achievement springs from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You know, he's trying to find some balance here. He's he's saying labor and achievement, it's springing so often from the wrong motive. People are worried about how they appear, how they appear to others. And so there's this competition going on. It's an envy of his neighbor. And that's meaningless. Well, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So that isn't any good either. Just to say, well, I'm not going to do anything then. That doesn't work. He said, better one handful with tranquility. Then two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You know, it's interesting. Um, I have a little picture here of a neighborhood. It's actually uh, uh, Maid's, Maid's, Maidstone. That's where it is. And uh, you can see the little white circles. Maybe you can't see exactly what's in the middle of all those little white circles. There's 13 of them. Uh, this is called the, let me just read it, the trampoline cluster effect. <laughs> Is you do a satellite picture across the UK, if you find one trampoline, they're like mushrooms. They seem to grow up in the other neighbor's yards. And there's whole whole yard uh, neighborhoods, no mushrooms, no, no trampolines. But then you look at this picture, every one of those circles is a trampoline. Now you think to yourself, how many hours a day does anyone in that neighborhood use that trampoline? Shouldn't they just bought one big trampoline? But you have 13 trampolines in that picture. And you know, it's funny because uh, I, was, I was thinking about this question about trampolines because I ride the train fairly often. And sometimes you ride on some rails where you're seeing into the back of everyone's yards. And there'll be this row of eight houses and it'll be like seven trampolines. And so I just put, I found this picture by searching Google in brackets, keeping up with the Joneses, trampolines. And that's what I found. <laughs> it's the trampoline cluster effect. You know, it could have been anything. 
you know, if you've got a trampoline, I'm not, I'm not banging on trampolines, okay? I like trampolines. But, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, we could have talked about cars. We could have talked about rose bushes. We could have talked about TV sets. We could have talked about anything. You know, a clothes. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We're quite happy with what we have till we see what the other guy has. You know, how much of envy of a neighbor, what kind of motivation is that to do anything? And yet, sadly, it's, it's how people can think so easily. And it becomes a sort of a, almost a game in society, trying to keep up. You know, all the advertising is constantly trying to make us aware of what we don't have, but some other lucky person has. And But we don't have it. But you can get it. And you can get it on credit. You know, it's, it's just, what's driving this? You know, and the truth is, competitiveness does not satisfy. What on earth difference does it really make what your neighbor has and what you have? How does that have any bearing on being satisfied with your life? But the sort of an image, if we have these things, then people think, well, they're successful and they should be satisfied. It's like this unspoken truth. You know, it's not just about having things. Sometimes being right, having to be right, is also a manifestation of this competitive mindset. And, you know, I think any of us that's lived any, any time at all, we know being right all the time doesn't help your relationships. Uh, I realized this uh, just right after getting married. You know, I, I realized it took about three of these, but after three discussions, I won't say arguments because they weren't that strong, but sort of three discussions, you know, uh, of opposing ideas uh, and feeling like, well, I won. <clears throat> Suddenly I realized I'd lost. My wife wasn't happy. She wasn't radiant. And, you know, so, you know, we think winning is so important. Is it really? You know, it's important. What are we striving after? Is it really going to satisfy? Let's read a little further in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we'll read verses 7 to 12. It says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his brother can help him, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I see uh, uh, Georgian snuggling right right now. Uh, Okay, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, it's interesting because there's a great value in our society about being independent. But what do you have when you get independent? When you finally get to this place, I really don't need to depend on anybody anymore. I can do it all myself. You know, this is my goal, to be completely independent. Really? And so how do you, you know, what happens to you when you get there? With all the improvements and advancements in technology, etc., 
One of the greatest problems in our society, and some are starting to say the greatest, is loneliness. Here's just a little uh, thing right off the internet today. The loneliness epidemic. We're more connected than ever, but are we feeling more alone? I mean, you know, messages just come, they just come right and left, right? I mean, we have so many different ways people can get a hold of us. It says in the small print, you might not see it from the back, social pain is as real a sensation for us as physical pain. And research has shown loneliness impacts on health in a greater way than smoking or obesity. Wow. But you know, two are better than one. We know that. And yet, if we strive for complete independence, how are we going to have relationships with each other? You know, it's a little bit of a humorous word of conventional wisdom, but, you know, I've heard women say men. Who can live with them and who can live without them? Or men say women. Who can live with them or who can live without them? You know, but the truth is, we all know down deep inside, we need each other. We need relationships. Our quality of life is completely defined by the relationships we have. I mean, you can have all the wealth, all the success, but if you don't have friends, if you don't have people to share it with, it's meaningless. How tragic to spend and toil and labor and in the end not have satisfaction. You know, the other thing he goes on to say in in Ecclesiastes 4 is that position and power do not satisfy. Let's read this. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But there, those who came later were not pleased with his, his successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You know, position and authority, they're not guaranteed. You don't get to hold them forever. Things change. You know, I was going to put up a slide. I just don't want to put that much information up there. But I looked at the 1960 gold medal winners of the Olympics. There wasn't a single name there I recognized. Now, you know how hard those people work to achieve that, etc.? And there may be some people that might recognize them, but already... All that energy and time, it's past. You know, position, authority, success, all these things, they don't guarantee contentment. And so uh, there's a warning here. A person of humble or even disreputable origins can end up displacing the one in the highest position. Stay humble. But the cycle continues and those that follow will find something to criticize in the successor. You know, it's, it just goes that way, right? It's, what, it's the wave of the world. You know, Solomon might even been thinking about his own father. Because we know these great stories about David. But remember, Solomon was the second son of Bathsheba, the woman with which David had committed adultery. And if you look at the story of Solomon, of David raising his family and Solomon's older brothers, many of them maybe 15, 16 years older than him, you know, he watched this tragic. He watched one brother 
murder another brother. He watched another brother rape a sister. I mean, this was happening in David's own family. And he says here, David, it says in the story, he should have been out fighting a battle, but instead he was relaxing. And it says in the evening he got up from his bed, meaning he'd already gone to bed, but he got up to walk around, but it wasn't that dark because he could see in the distance a woman bathing and it was Bathsheba and he committed adultery with her. You know, he's saying you're better to be a humble or a, a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. You know, the truth is, wisdom doesn't always stay with you. And, uh, you know, there's some great advice for Solomon himself here, and obviously for all of us. But, you know, I want to talk about, here we've got the question. It's been laid out quite nicely by Solomon. But let's talk about what really gives us satisfaction. What is God's wisdom revealed to really give us satisfaction? And let's read together Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 13. It says, I became a servant of this gospel. This is Paul the Apostle writing. By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of the mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal power, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I know there's a lot in that text, but I really just want to pull out something there in the middle. He says, now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known. You know, it's interesting. It should be made known. The church has the power from God. It's been empowered to proclaim a message to the world, a message of love, a message of grace, a message of wisdom. But it's not human wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. But what's interesting is this wisdom will actually satisfy And I want us to just look at a couple of scriptures that show the power of the church. The power of God working in His people. We're the church because the church means called out to assemble. So, rightfully so, here we are assembled. The church assembles. It meets together. It's connected. It's not a bunch of separate individuals. It's people connected to each other. It's an assembly. But what's interesting is the church can actually remedy what was lacking in man's wisdom. So let's look at another scripture over in Galatians. Chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, instead of competing with our neighbors, what we have in Christ is complete equality. Now, obviously, in the church, there is male and female. 
Um, you know, we became members that we didn't lose our gender by becoming Christians. But what he's saying is gender is not a value statement in the church. Who you are before God and who we should be before each other is not based on gender. You said also that there's no Jew nor Greek. And the Jews, they'd been given the truth of God. They were following the law of Moses. They, they were his people. But that, that became for many a source of arrogance. And the Gentiles were those who weren't Jews. But in the church, it doesn't matter what your lineage or heritage is. It doesn't matter if you grew up religious or not. You know, I can, I can say this from my experience. There's some advantages to growing up with a religious background. And there's some disadvantages. And there's some, it, there's some advantages to growing up without any religious background whatsoever. And some disadvantages. In other words, none of those positions themselves are superior. But what he's saying, in Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are in your, in your gaining of knowledge. It's if you're in the church, there's no difference between those with a background or not. And slave or free, you know, that's definitely an economic question. And praise God we don't have slavery, at least not in its most visible form. But a lot of times we look at how the economy works and stuff. Definitely some are slaves. Working away for, for the taskmaster of debt and, you know, just living. And it's important that we, we understand this, but, you know, our economics make no difference in the church before God. Those with better jobs than others or better paying jobs than others, that doesn't make you any more valuable. Those with certain gifts from God and those without, that doesn't make them any more valuable than the others. You know, we have different levels of education. A level of education doesn't make you any more valuable to God. And it doesn't make you any more valuable before Him in the church. You know, all these things, they're just worldly measures. But see, in the church, we don't have to compete with each other. In fact, i got a better idea. Let's just share. Just share whatever God's blessed us with. Let's, let's be sharing together. That's the characteristic of the church. Love expressed in sharing. Not competition. But in building each other up and sharing. Here's another scripture to look at. What about, what can we replace uh, independence with? We can re- replace it with interdependence and relationships. We're going to read Ephesians 4 verses 32 to, ver- to chapter 5 verse 2. It says... Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, we need to get rid of independence. But that doesn't mean we just become dependent with with no restriction. Or codependent, which usually is meaning negatively reinforcing some bad behavior. But we need to be interdependent. We depend on each other in healthy and right ways. We take care of each other's needs. We know each other well enough. And we need these kinds of relationships. Be kind and compassionate to one another. You know, the key to great relationships is forgiveness. If you're going to have a close relationship with somebody... 
there, there's got to be forgiveness there. That, that's what draws you even closer. And so the God's wisdom manifest in the church is forgive one another. Love each other. Be imitators of God. That's what being a Christian is. The church is a community of disciples, of Christ followers. We need to imitate Him. And that's God's plan for us. Now one last point, instead of position and power, there needs to be service and humility. Let's read Mark 10, verses 41 to 45. Basically, right before this, James and John had asked Jesus for a favor. Actually, it was the mother of James and John. Now, can we, can my son sit at your right hand in your glory? One on your right, one on your left. I always like that question because the scriptures talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. So if you're going to be at Jesus' left, you have to be sitting in God's lap, basically. <laughs> but anyway, when the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said... You know that those who are, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Boy, you don't hear that in the world. Oh, you want to be awesome? You want to be great? Here's what you need to do. Be the servant and slave of everyone as much as you can. And then he went on to say, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I would make one observation here. Jesus came and he was the ultimate servant, but that doesn't mean he did everything everybody wanted him to. He met their needs. The the word for servant that's being used here is is a servant who meets the personal needs of the master. he He meets our needs. And see, he knows better what we need than we do. And sometimes what we want is exactly what we don't need. That's why you get those answers, no, sometimes, when we pray. That's not the reason behind every no, but sometimes. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See how different this is from the world? It isn't in the world. It's how many people look up to me? How many people serve me? In Christ, it's how many people can we serve? It's, it, that's what's great in God's kingdom, is being a servant. You know, in closing, I just want us to watch a, a clip from the movie Troy. And here's where I'll pray for technical things. And always grateful for Cameron's help. Okay. But in this clip, I mean, the, this, this movie is about the story of Achilles. And you all know the story of Achilles, Achilles' heel, your Achilles' tendon. You know, if you get a... Achilles died because he got dipped in this water that was going to protect his whole body, but his mother was holding him by the ankle. And so his one little little piece, one little spot was his weak spot. And of course, in in the story by Homer, that's how he died. But you know, in in this interesting thing, this is Achilles before he goes to fight in Troy. And what's, what's interesting is he actually understands that he's got to make a choice to, to spend his energy and go after what the world thinks is important or actually choose something a little more humble that actually might be a little more satisfying to him personally.
Okay, get the point. You can everyone hear that? You know, mom's saying you got a choice to make. Either you can stay here, raise a family, you'll be loved, your children will love you, it'll be, it'll be amazing. But you know, in two generations, you'll be forgotten. Or you can go do this great thing and die and be remembered through history. And you know, the sad thing is he makes, he makes the second choice. You know, it's interesting, each one of us have the choice to make. 
And there are all these ultimate questions, but one of them is, what am I going to do with my life? What do I believe and what decisions will I make? I just want to close with one scripture, the words of Jesus, Luke 9, 24 to 25. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever wants to, whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? You know, we all have choices, but we have a chance here to just follow Christ, to simply depend on his love for us and live a life. And what's interesting is, yes, there'll be sacrifices to be made, but there'll be satisfaction that the world could never give us. And so let's encourage each other in this to decide to follow Jesus. Let's pray as the worship team comes up and takes the place. Our Father God, we thank you that you have made your will clear for us. We thank you for this uh, book of Ecclesiastes that really articulates well the questions and helps us think about what is important. Where is our energy going? What are we striving after? But Father, it's, that's just a question. We want to praise you and just say thank you for the answer that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that we can come together and worship him. Thank you, Father, for his life here on earth and the sacrifice he made for us on the cross. And Father, we pray that we can live in him, that we can be a community that is based in him, based in his love, in his grace, in his forgiveness, uh, in his wisdom. Father, we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank Andy for those poignant words there. In response to that, if we can stand for a closing song, I want to see Jesus lift his high. Thank you.